Good evening. So our plan for the rest of the evening is uh, for me to speak about uh, 20 minutes or so on the theme of uh, Buddhist practice and its connection with nonviolent action. And then Tiffany will follow that theme by letting us know quite a bit about the work of the Nonviolent Peace Force in different parts of the world. And we'll, she'll talk a little bit longer than me, and then we'll have quite a bit of time for discussion among all of us, which is, I, I know for me, my favorite part, and maybe for you too. So it's our favorite part. <laughs> and so, and then we'll finish at 9.15. I believe that the heart of the teachings of the Buddha and of Buddhist practice is exactly the same as we find in the nonviolence of uh, Gandhi and King and their, their life, their lives, and their work. And we could summarize that essence uh, pretty easily. This is, I think, for me, a way of talking about the core of Buddhist practice. It is to learn better to respond rather than react habitually to every moment. And it's to bring the qualities of wisdom, compassion, clarity, kindness, and skillful action to each moment, including challenging moments. There was a Zen teacher from the uh, 10th century in China named uh, Yunnan, and he was once asked, what is the core teaching of all the Buddhas and all the teachers? And people might have expected him to give a complicated metaphysical answer. You know, the essence of things is to see into the interpenetration of mind, body, and spirit opened up in an illuminating glimpse of the cosmos. How's that sound? (laughs) But he didn't say that. He He said, what is the core teaching of all the Buddhas and all the teachers? He said, appropriate response. Appropriate response moment to moment. I think this is what all of the uh, practices we do, mindfulness, loving kindness, developing more ethical clarity, learning how to be with challenging emotions, all of the curriculum of Spirit Rock and other places, I think could be summarized as that learning to respond rather than react. To me, that's a very clear expression of the Four Noble Truths. Because to be able to respond rather than to react, we need a lot of freedom. We need to have worked through a lot of our conditioning, a lot of our habits. And again, I want to say that that core is what we find both at the depths of Buddhist practice, the essence of Buddhist practice, and it's also what we find 
in uh, nonviolence. I want to say a little bit about that and then have a kind of transition to uh, the work of uh, Tiffany and the Nonviolent Peace Force. Another way that I could uh, express what I want to say is that inner transformation and outer transformation share the same principles and dynamics. That deep inner transformation and social transformation have the same dynamics. This is what I have found personally in working for, since the, uh, really since around 1990, with a number of training programs for people doing social service and social change. And in a lot of that work and in different kinds of writing, what I found was that you could express the core inner principles and they would be exactly the same as we found when people try to bring um, wisdom and compassion into action. So that's actually, I think, quite important. It mean, really means the unity of all our lives. It's like when we go to social action, we, don't, we need the same principles. What the challenge is, is that we don't always know how to bring those principles into expression, you know, in communication, with conflicts in the world, and so forth. There's a great teaching that I think... Uh, expresses this core principle. And it's probably my favorite teaching by the Buddha. Many of you probably know it, but I like to teach it as often as I can. So here it is. It's called the teaching of the two arrows. How many of you know this teaching? Okay, so, okay, good. Not very many. Okay. Um, Okay, so, so listen to the, listen, okay. So here it is. The Buddha was once uh, talking to a number of his uh, practitioners. And he said, people who do not practice experience at times the unpleasant, unpleasant sensations, different kinds of unpleasant experiences. People who are practitioners also sometimes experience the unpleasant. How are, they di- how are practitioners and non-practitioners different? No one answered, so he answered his own question, which was one of his main uh, pedagogical styles. And here's what he said. He said, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. And he said, this is like being shot by an arrow. So at times we have unpleasant physical experiences. We have illness. We get injured. Eventually we will die, which may be unpleasant. We have unpleasant emotional experiences, unpleasant thoughts, ideas. We have, you know, negative thoughts of of many kinds, difficult emotions. We have difficult interactions with others. Sometimes we're treated unfairly or unjustly. All of these are as if we are shot by an arrow. This is the first arrow. In that we are shot by the first arrow, there is no difference between a practitioner and a non-practitioner. We all sometimes experience the unpleasant. What the 
non-practitioner does, though, when that first arrow has been shot, when there is the presence of the unpleasant, and what the practitioner does are different. And we should be clear that um, even though sometimes we practice, when we're not practicing skillfully, we are a non-practitioner. <laughs> okay, just, just to be clear. <laughs> and so what the non-practitioner does when, there is, where is, when the first arrow is shot, is the non-practitioner tends to shoot a second arrow at oneself or at others as if that would help. So what does that look like? When we have physical pain, we often tense around the pain. We contract. No coincidence that one of the first applications of uh, mindfulness was in the area of chronic pain. They found that as much as 80% of what uh, people with some kinds of chronic pain, not all, experience as pain is not the um, initial stimulus, not the first arrow, but it's the shooting of a second arrow. It's the contraction. That's shooting the second arrow. We know very well what this looks like emotionally and mentally, I'm sure. You know, uh, we have a difficult experience. It's maybe some distress, unpleasant, and we may react shooting a lot of second arrows at ourselves and others. So it would look like blaming, judging, you know, um, going to the refrigerator, um, speaking negatively towards another, etc. Those would be examples of shooting the second arrow, right? Where we're doing it as, as if it would help. And of course, the analysis is it actually doesn't help. It keeps us in loops. And of course, we could see this interpersonally. Someone says something mean to me, I instantly say something mean right back. That's shooting the second arrow. And also, we can see that in uh, conflicts, often one side will do something which results in me having pain, and I will react back and try to inflict pain on the other. A lot of conflicts are people shooting second arrows at each other. We can see that interpersonally very easily, right? We just react at each other. And so what the Buddha says is that the practitioner learns not to shoot the second arrow on all those levels, we could say. And that's, that's a whole training to learn how to do that. So we would have to learn, for example, how to be at times with the unpleasant without reacting. Not so easy, you know, when that's skillful. A lot of what we do in meditation is sometimes just to be with the um, be with the difficult emotion, be with difficult sensations, be with difficult thoughts without instantly trying to fix it or, or react, right? And so I think it's not so hard to see that the teachings of Gandhi and King are basically saying, we have received oppression, we have received pain, we will not simply shoot the second arrow at those for whom we, who, who we think gave us pain. And we will respond. So it's not about passivity. Not shooting the second arrow means that we're actually not bound by the pain in unconscious, habitual ways. But we can actually have some degree of freedom 
to respond skillfully. So it's pretty easy to see that this is uh, there in the work of Gandhi and King from Gandhi. Hatred can only be overcome by love. Counter-hatred only increases the surface as well as the depth of hatred. Do you hear the teaching of the two arrows there? This is from Dr. King. One must follow a consistent principle of non-injury and must consistently refuse to inflict injury on another. And they're, they're calling upon using the resources. We would say we would use the resources of mindfulness, loving kindness, wisdom, and so forth to work with the situation when there's something difficult or distressing. This is again Dr. King. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We can never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. In other words, the second arrow. By its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. And, and then his famous invocation of what he calls the beloved community. He says, in all conflicts, the aim is to create the beloved community. And if you read his, about his life, you see amazing passages where he shows empathy with poor whites who are, you know, um, what? Um, caught in racism, right? You know, typically by the manipulations of wealthy whites who use them as a, you know, a buffer in a way. Anyway, that's, there's a whole analysis there. But, but he had tremendous empathy and, and quite remarkable. So his aim is to create what he called the beloved community. The aim of every, every conflict is actually to reach reconciliation, he said. The end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of human beings. Right, so it sounds beautiful. You know, it sounds our Buddhist practice of meeting difficult situations with kindness, with wisdom, with love. Sounds great. What happens when you go into a really difficult situation like violence or when there's a dictator, you know? Some might say, well, yeah, nonviolence is all well and good, but it actually only worked because the British were kind of nice in India, which, of course, when you look carefully, not so true. Um, or it only works in certain places, you know? And, you know, kind of the typical um, initial critique of nonviolence is it wouldn't work with Hitler. It wouldn't work with violence. And that's actually what we're going to look at some in looking at the work of the nonviolent peace force. Or, um, so I wanted just to finish my part of the presentation by mentioning a few examples because when we actually look at the historical record, there's a lot that doesn't fit that stereotypical comment about it wouldn't work with Hitler or it doesn't work with violence. And I want to point to a few examples. One is a pretty well-known 
a set of case studies done by uh, Erica Chenoweth and the Maria Stefan, who did a book uh, a few years ago called Why Civil Resistance Works. And they looked at uh, 200 violent revolutions and 100 nonviolent campaigns that had occurred in the world between 1900 and 2006. And they looked very carefully and they had a kind of an international team of people doing analysis. And they came up with some rather startling conclusions. Of those uh, nonviolent revolutions, 26% succeeded. Of the nonviolent campaigns, 53% succeeded. So it's a greater success rate. The nonviolent campaigns tended to lead to democracy. The violent campaigns tended to lead to, to dictatorship and tyranny. Right? As you might as you might expect. They found that every nonviolent campaign that had at least 3.5 participation always succeeded. Every instance when there was at least 3.5% participation. This is pretty amazing statistic, isn't it? Right, when you look at that. So basically they find that nonviolent movements helped lead much more likely both to success and to a kind of society that we might want. That's very, very, very interesting. And we can look to also a number of examples among those case studies, and I'll just mention a few examples and pass it on to, to Tiffany. You know, we find a lot of examples of nonviolent movements toppling dictators who had all the arsenal of violence. You know, one case study would be the Philippines. Many of you know what happened in 1986, the dictatorship of Marcos. It was thought that he would just mow down everyone with machine guns when there was resistance. It did not happen, right? And it was pretty much a nonviolent campaign and the dictatorship was toppled. No one thought that could happen, partly because they hadn't studied the history, right? And I'll give two examples which are pretty remarkable of even what happened in relationship to the Nazis. These are examples that are not well known. One of them is the example of what happened in Denmark under Nazi occupation. You know, I think this was around uh, Rosh Hashanah in 1943, in October, in Denmark. The uh, German what, uh, representative, or the, ger- the person in charge of the occupation, you know, the Nazi commandant, or whatever we, co- we call him, he ordered the roundup of the Danish Jews. One of his uh, confidants, a German uh, shipping magnate who had been a Nazi, told the Jewish community of this plan and told a number of uh, Danes of the plan. They spread the word and instantly virtually all the Jews went into hiding. Germans could not round up any of them. Massive nonviolent participation from the whole community. And then the Germans offered a num- uh, ordered another roundup after that. 
and word went out and um, the Danes decided to smuggle the Jews to Sweden, which was just a few miles away across the water. And so they had this vast array of uh, fishing boats, small rowboats, dinghies, and they um, took the Jewish people across to Sweden. The Nazis did not shoot at them. This happened, and... um, about 90% of the Jews were able to go to Sweden. They captured about, I think, about 5%. And they sent them to uh, concentration camps. There was no um, retaliation by the Nazis. This kind of nonviolence resistance simply succeeded. And then the Danes made special um, efforts to get back Those Jews who were in concentration camps, they got most of them back. Um, 99% of Danish Jews survived. That is not well known, right? Even with the Nazis. Massive uh, nonviolent resistance and in actuality, no retaliation. I don't know all the reasons for that, but it's pretty remarkable, right? And there was another instance that I'll just talk about briefly very similar, that took place in the heart of Berlin, also in 1943. There was, um, as part of the final solution, there had been a group of uh, Jewish people who had not been sent off to the camps in 1943. And these were the um, typically the men of mixed marriages. And so, you know, with the obsessiveness the Nazis said, we have to, um, we have to arrest all the uh, Jewish men in mixed marriages and send them off to concentration camps. And so they assembled them in a prison in Berlin. Within a very short time, word went out and spontaneously, um, all the wives went down to where the prison was and started making a ruckus. <laughs> you know, thousands of women. Nazis could have just mowed them down with machine guns, right? This was actually like four blocks from the uh, Gestapo headquarters. And the men in the prison were also making noise, <laughs> right? It's right at the heart of the uh, Nazi kingdom. I think they were, they were uh, taken off guard. What actually happened then was that some of the men had been taken to concentration camps. They were all brought back. All the men were released. The men were told, don't say what you saw there. And everyone was released and no one was arrested. Nothing happened. Nonviolent resistance right at the heart. You know, they didn't, and so I just wanted to name those because those are stories that one should know. Okay, so with that, I'll pass it on to Tiffany. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. If you don't mind, I'll stand up a little bit and say hi. 
So, yes, yeah, so taking, this, that was such a great introduction, that what you were saying really resonates with the work that we do with Nonviolent Peace Force. Um, and I'm going to take you from this sort of very beautiful presentation that's very touching to a very practical application of learning how to respond appropriately in very different, difficult circumstances. And I particularly appreciate you really taking it to those hard questions around the Second World War and very extreme examples of violence. I think that when we talk about an interpersonal practice of nonviolence, we can all pretty much get our heads around it. Um, and even at our sort of really basic family and community levels. But it does become a little overwhelming when we start to think about what that means in situations of armed conflict and complex conflict and how is it possible. And people who are very committed to nonviolence and to dialogue and to engagement, we are all, when we feel threatened and we feel scared, we have a tendency sort of to retreat into what we think is going to keep us safe. And often that is a general norm, sort of our global paradigm, to be able to move into a place where you meet force with force. When you are addressing people who are at risk um, for violence, particularly when there's armed action, and what is our standard paradigm across the world is to send in more guns. And I can tell you after more than 10 years of practice in the field, what that feels like on the ground is the, li the living definition of insanity. When we think there's guns, there's t violence, people are being shot, people are being killed, people are running for their lives, and what we think we need to do to make them safer is send in more guns. There's, across the board, sort of statistically, it has somewhat of a neutral impact. Usually, best case scenario, there are some examples when, when that does help, but usually, in best-case scenarios, we see it sort of as a neutralizing force. Um, but in all too many cases, it actually makes things worse. It creates an increased tension. Um, it threatens it's the sovereignty of nation-states. Uh, people feel that they've been invaded. And this is at the political, the geopolitical level. And on the personal level, for civilians who are living in war-affected places, who've been living in sometimes multi-generational uh, conflict-affected areas, it just further entrenches a power differential where the civilian who is being buffeted back and forth, who is basically cannon fodder, literal cannon fodder, while people are fighting out issues around greed and power and money, uh, it further entrenches that, um, that power relationship. And in protracted conflict, an unarmed civilian who's just trying to survive over time, what happens is it erodes your sense of self-reliance and your sense of, of, of uh, your ability to take care of yourself. So when we send in more guns, it just com it, it com further entrenches that paradigm. So the work that we do is Nonviolent Peace Force, which is very much rooted in Gandhian practice. Uh, Gandhi's dream of the Shanti Sena, or the Peace Army, where, which would be an organized force, an organized approach to the most complex in, of, of situations where we would approach violence with nonviolence. And this is what we do on a daily basis. Uh, that circle behind us there, we see this, what we call this, this is very practical terms. I work for an NGO. We use very humanitarian language. Uh, it's called the protection onion. Um, and it's a good teaching tool when we think about 
what we do, which is called unarmed civilian protection. So taking the practice of nonviolence, putting a very practical label on it and a very practical application to it, and then we take it into an area where there are humanitarian responses to complex conflicts. So as a teaching tool, humanitarian, uh, the protection onion, and this very inner circle here, the physical protection from imminent violence is where we root our work. And this is the space that I'm talking about that is typically across the world the place that we consider the work, the purview of security forces, police, private security forces, the military, armed groups of some sort. And I'll take you for a little tour of our work and the type of work that we do where we're challenging that global paradigm to say that there's a lot more space in that inner circle and we have the capacity as civilians who are trained to engage without the use of weapons to be able to enhance stability and to increase the safety and security for civilians who are affected by violent conflict. Really practically, what does that mean for us as an organization? This is what our global footprint looks like. We have five operational country programs um, working in places that ha are conflict affected. And you can see by the lineup, it depends which country we're in, sort of what style of conflict it is. The work that we do, we try and really approach being able to engage in, if anybody's a, a, a scholar of conflict studies, we talk sort of the, the, the spectrum of conflict, sort of that linear model of conflict pre, during, post, um, which of course in reality we all know is not a linear experience in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but the work of unarmed civilian protection, UCP, is applicable all along that line. We've got country programs in the Middle East, in Iraq, um, which is our, most, our newest program. We've been there for about five or six months now, um, responding to the violence that has uh, befall, befallen people who have been escaping the cities that were under the control of ISIS during the uh, coalition's forces, the Iraqi security forces-led coalition attack on these different cities. And I'll tell you a little bit more about what that actually looks like. In Lebanon, working on Syria, working with Syrians. South Sudan's our largest program. As, as I was introduced, I spent five years there as the country director, so very near and dear to my heart. Uh, very complex environment. And then in Myanmar and the Philippines, which is a different kind of conflict and, and certainly at different stages um, in those places, a little bit more mature, a little bit further along in their process on that really long and complicated journey, trying to get out of violent conflict and towards peace. We've got a team going tomorrow into Bangladesh. Uh, this is our team from Myanmar, um, and in, that is in response to the Rohingya crisis. So the 500,000 plus people who have had to flee across that border in the last few weeks, uh, we are sending a response team on the other side to be able to help with the protection needs, the violence reduction needs of people who have found themselves suddenly and very violently displaced from their homes. And we are exploring Nigeria as another option as well. And how does that work? So we've got, our goals are to, to protect people in situations of violence. So when, when violence is upon us, when there's an immediate threat of physical violence, then our first and primary focus is to be able to protect people. And we have a whole toolkit that we use, I'll talk a little bit more about that, where we pull from that part of the toolkit that allows us to be able to engage um, in a way that is, is uh, we're able to push, push back some safe space around people. 
We want to support communities to be able to do that themselves. We're a small organization, we're an international organization, and the goal always is to support and focus on the primacy of the local communities, the local actors that we're engaging with, and we draw from their practice, we draw from their traditions, we draw from all, what they're already doing to self-protect, to all, they're already, they're, they're, whatever their practice is around mediation and dialogue, their nonviolent engagements, and it's, it's existed. I've never worked in a place, no matter how complex and how violent, where that doesn't exist somewhere within the culture. Sometimes in multi-generational conflict, it gets quite buried and it can get a little fractured. And some of the work we do is just help to help communities reconnect with those existing practices. And then ultimately to build. We want to be able to protect, help communities to protect themselves. And then that very long game, which is the building of local peace infrastructure for that long goal of moving away from violent conflict towards, towards a sustainable peace solution. Really, in summary, a really easy way to think about our work is sort of a, a very reactive component where we're reacting to the situations around us. We're reacting with appropriate responses. I thought that was such a great way of putting that. Um, and that when things ten tensions are, are high, we're, 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 we're addressing those needs. And then the proactive side, which is really thinking, again, about that long game, behavioral change, addressing structural violence, doing what we can to, to contribute to, to making things go in a different direction for future generations. In practice, really pragmatically, we have teams that are composed of international staff that are paired up with locally hired staff from the communities that we, that we serve. And they work together. They're embedded in the communities that we serve. We're a nonpartisan organization. We're not affiliated with any political association, any religious affiliation, at, or, and most importantly, particularly where we're working, nor do we have, we take a side in the conflict that we're working in. What I always say is we have no skin in the game as it relates to the thing, the thing that is being fought over, whether it's territorial control or access to resources or as the supremacy of a particular identity. What we do, we're not neutral, what we do stand for, of course, is safety, the protection and safety and security for civilians to, at the very, very least, be able to live their normal lives as, as normal as possible, despite what's happening around them, despite what the power structures are doing, because we know that takes months, years in most cases, as we see in contemporary conflict, it goes on for decades and decades. And best case scenario is people are feeling sufficiently safe and sufficiently able to not only live their normal lives, but to not just survive, but actually thrive and actually get really active in their own communities. And even if it's at the micro level, to be able to be, work on building their own peace in, in a very tangible way. We find that the work that we do on our civilian protection work based on the principles of nonviolence is a very naturally inclusive space. It opens up space for people to engage in these words that we use globally that feel very patriarchal and dominant and force safety and security, community security. Those are words that are representative of what we're all looking for, which is just to feel okay, to feel that we're okay when we go home. And often, again, going back to that typical paradigm, that norm, is that that space is often held um, by armed actors, and that that is most typically a very particular narrow focus of, of a particular gender identity. In the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, the United Nations Blue Helmets, probably the thing you're most familiar with, with if I say the word peacekeeping, their deployment is of peacekeepers it only consists of 4% women. 
So you see it's a very particular narrow focus of people representing what is supposed to be protection. And in this type of work, it's very inclusive along gender lines, but along sort of more broadly age, scope, capacities, abilities. Um, and that what we really see really contributes to more sustainable and meaningful solutions. This is called the methodology wheel. Again, a good teaching tool, and I, I won't spend so much time talking you through all those words, but seeing what we use as a training tool for our new staff. Um, and this is how we, how do we spend our days? So this is basically the toolkit. This allows us to pull from um, a, a, a whole range of strategies, methodologies, and actions um, that are based in nonviolent practice that we've developed over decades. Um, this work really has grown out of the solidarity movement in Latin America, where it was very clear that a presence of a visible international who was demonstrating the physical manifestation of the international community's care and concern for a particular population could have a deterrent effect in some cases. Not in all cases. There's no miracle cure for anything. But in some cases that that could be quite effective. So that's really the foundation. And then over decades of practice, we've learned how to adapt this approach to be much more nuanced, much more involved, and to be able to be um, more flexible and adaptable to different circumstances and to addressing the, the very specific needs of different populations like children or women or youth or the elderly or disabled in different communities who are affected by violent conflict. The easiest way, however, to help you understand a little bit more about how we spend our time is just to tell you some stories about our work on the ground and our work in the field. This photo was taken, I was in uh, northern Iraq about three weeks ago, and I was with my team there, and we are, as I said, have only been in Iraq for a few months, and we were called in um, and requested from... Um, other organizations and the United Nations, the humanitarian coordinator, who is the person who runs the UN deployment in a country when there's a humanitarian crisis, based on the reputation of work we've done in other places to come in and support on the protection front. You've seen it in the news, the fight for Mosul and, and the smaller cities, Telafar and Hawija now, um, has been really brutal. It's been block by block fighting. It is all the might and force and hellfire you can possibly imagine in a war um, that is being rained down upon upon a city and upon communities. And the, the fight's been block by block, and every time a block is liberated, people run for it. Um, and our job has been, been working on what's called the displacement corridor. So as people are coming out of the various cities, and they go through a long series of, of processes to get through, and we've been accompanying them, being present, um, working in areas that are very heavily militarized. Uh, the military has a different job and a different focus and a different area of concern as opposed to the protection of, of, of um, civilians uh, in those situations. So that's been our job to do. This is a very unique case, however. These women that you see um, in the photo from the back are all um, foreign wives of ISIS uh, fighters. So we got a phone call when I was there a couple of weeks ago from the organization that was doing what's called camp management. So in one of these big displacement camps, people have fled from their homes. There's about 300,000 people who are sheltering in a camp, um, living in tents and, and using communal wash facilities and all of that until it's safe enough for them to be able to go home. So there's always an organization or two that's in charge of just managing the camps, the operations. We get a call from, from the camp manager 
saying we have um, a real problem. We have a thousand women and children who've just been delivered to us, uh, which it would be difficult to manage in the best of circumstances if they were just quote unquote regular internally displaced people or refugees if you're crossing a border. But in this case, this group was in all the years of work I've been in the field, this is probably the group that has the most significant vulnerabilities um, is these women, none of them are Iraqi. So we're in the middle of northern Iraq, none of them are from Iraq. We have people from the Ukraine, from Chechnya, from China, from, from Kazakhstan, from Uzbekistan, from Trinidad, uh, people, women and their kids who are in this group. And their husbands had been either killed or detained after um, the fighting in one of the cities, and they had fled, and they were rounded up by the Iraqi security forces and brought in. So this is a group of people nobody knows what to do with. Are they civilians? Are they associated with ISIS? Were they there by choice? Were they complicit in what was going on? Are they a danger now? Normally, we would apply a very normative gender lens and say women and children, clearly they're okay, but you add the brush of ISIS on top of anything right now, and we all get scared. And you can imagine in Iraq, in this area where people have lived the occupation in some cities by this group, they don't care that it's women and children. There's lots of people there that just will tell you what has happened to them. And the, 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 the hunger for revenge is really strong. It, revenge, at the worst, just lack of caring it, at the least, but very, very little sign of anybody who's actively worried about what's going to happen to these women and children. So during the day, there's lots of NGOs, lots of humanitarian workers around in a camp. They're providing water, they're doing food distribution, they're doing all of those things. But the problem is at night, they go, everybody goes home. And so this was the big, big scare and the big panic that we got the call about. We're known for being willing to do what's called overnights, which means we will go anywhere overnight if the circumstances allow, if it's sufficiently safe, and if we think our presence can be helpful. And in this case, we had done overnights in this camp before for other vulnerable populations, but nothing quite like this. So we were able to organize and pull our team together and to go up into the camp and start um, doing overnight presence, which we are continuing to do um, to this day. A couple, a couple of weeks later, well, the powers that be are figuring out what's going to happen to these women. And what we know is that they are treated as enemies of the state, and the, our colleagues who speak the local language were letting us have let us know that they've been overhearing different people from the various security apparatus around admitting that they would be treating these women very differently if we weren't there, that they would um, harass them, that they had targeted some women that they thought were very beautiful, that they were going to take. Uh, so by having our presence there, being able to engage actively, what's actually happening in this photo is, is called a medical accompaniment. Uh, often people who are really vulnerable are afraid to speak up if they need medical support. Um, they're afraid to go anywhere. They don't trust what's going to happen to them. So we started providing accompaniment so that they could access medical facilities um, and go from there. So this is a good example of really testing our own ability to be nonpartisan, our own biases, our own fears, and to remember that according to international humanitarian law and the humanitarian principles, is these, these women and children are non combatants, and that's all just according to the law, and probably what's most important and what we share here in this room is that they're human beings. Nonviolence work is, is based on that idea that you connect, and it depends on the language you're most comfortable with, but 
And some people feel most comfortable with divinity. Some people feel most comfortable with humanity. But that regardless of what decisions everybody's made and what has brought you to this place is that we connect with one another on the human level, the level of humanity or the level of divinity. And that's where we find our compassion. And that's where we're able to hurt each, help each other and protect each other from being hurt. One of these women asked our staff, are we going to be sold to the United Nations now? Is that what happens to us next? It gives you a very chilling picture of what's happened to them and where they've come from. We're getting a little request for some updates here. Technical difficulties. All right, oh, we don't want that. There we go. All right. Another thing that we really try and focus on, I talked about sort of that real community level. When we get really focused about um, what's happening at the micro level and really complex uh, conflicts like a place like Syria, which is where this photo is from, um, we think there's nothing that can be done. It's too complex. It's geopolitically messy. All the big powers are involved. It's really overt violence. Uh, the work that we're doing there is working with Syrians inside their own communities. These are people who really want to stay home. They do not want to become refugees. And more than anything else, they want to contribute to their own communities. So we work with them. We train them in the way that we would train our own staff. Um, and we encourage them and support them to be able to choose things that they can work on that are within their control, that in some way helps contribute to stabilization and in some way helps to make them feel like they're a little bit safer despite what's happening around them. We had one group of people who came together and one of the things, and they're all quite young, they're all in their 20s, uh, saying to us uh, what they would really like to do and what they feel really frustrated by is random gunfire. Uh, you can see the years of the war have, have gone on. Their weapons, there's a mass proliferation of weapons and this is a place where people fire off their weapons for lots of reasons. They're bored, they're sad, they're mad, they're happy. Uh, all of the things that, are, that could possibly, emotions you could ever have are often punctuated by gunfire. And so we said, okay, that's great, but how are you going to address this? This is a massive problem in a big city. How are you going to address this? Let's narrow it down, narrow the focus. And this is a, the, one of the most beautiful examples of, of two of the, the, the criteria for really good nonviolence work is creativity and persistence. And this is one of the greatest examples of that. So they decided, okay, we're going to narrow our focus on funerals. Martyrs' funerals, Syrians have and that 21-gun salute equivalent for that. And these, after all of their training and after this really intensive residential training we did with them on nonviolence, unarmed civilian protection, they really started to articulate that for them it didn't feel comfortable to honor people who died by violent means with a demonstration and a show of things that are violent. So they wanted to end the random gunfire at that point. So they went through a very long process of talking this through and realizing that they couldn't just ask the community to stop doing that. It was such a solemn display of respect and something very entrenched in the way that they worked. They needed a, they needed a trade-off. So lots of artists in this group, lots of creative types, and they came up with this idea of forming a band. See the photo you see there. And they wanted to offer up, instead of random gunfire, instead of the, the salute, that they would, there would be a funeral band that would play and play traditional songs and it would be respectful and appropriately solemn and it would be the trade-off. They needed the, the approval of the community leaders that they, that they um, in this community that they're living in. 
of course, a very hierarchical society. And so while they were with us during their training, we really prepped with them and really thought about how they would approach them, how they could connect. So they go back home and they went and spoke to the community leaders and asked for their approval to and pled their case. And all of the community leaders turned them down. That's just, that's very nice that you've had this training. We're really happy for you and all that. But this is a war zone and this is the way we do things. This is the way we have always done things. And we will continue to do that. So they were devastated, of course, as we all are when we're very enthusiastic and excited about an idea we think nobody could possibly turn us down on. Uh, and they called and part of the, the support we give them is ongoing coaching and talking through troubles and problems. So we work through this whole process that we do that's called influence mapping, where you think about sort of all of all the people that you need to get on board who can possibly help you uh, and get them to to see if they can influence other people and sort of get a, a, a turning the tide of, of, of the way people are approaching to things. So they did this. So they, they reorganized themselves. It took them quite a while to get their courage back up. They re-engaged. They went back. They finally got one leader to agree. And then eventually, over a few weeks of really intensive engagement, they were able to get all of them on board. That was about six months ago. We had this group back together uh, with us in Lebanon just a few weeks ago. And this is where they brought and shared this photo with us. And this is now the norm and is now not only the norm in their community but these community leaders are so happy with the way things are turned out that they're all fighting to take credit for the idea that this was their their thing so they've now put up banners all over the city with their own faces on it with these lovely platitudes and statements about reducing gunfire and all of that and at this point we all say we don't care who who takes credit for it it's the fact that it happened and this is just a really good example for how really intensive, engaged, day-to-day -day interpersonal work can help start carving out stability and safety. So not only is this very enthusiastic group of young people who are working on something tangibly delivered on something that has really um, made their community safer in one of the most horrific environments one could, one could ever find themselves in, they are also now really inspired and inspiring others to come on board and to see if they can do what else they can do. And they are the next generation. This war will end one day, and this will be a group of people who said we were leaders in really difficult times, and we're going to take that forward. So there's always something you can do, even in the most complex situations. I know we're running a little slow on time, so low on time. So I'll just just touch on a couple of more points. Uh, I loved your women raising a ruckus um, uh, example. There's nothing that is more effective in some areas than women raising a ruckus, and we see this in South Sudan with our women's peacekeeping teams. Uh, we started this project as a small, small pilot project in 2011 when we realized that our community protection engagements are working at the community level, supporting local local protection, self-protection efforts and local peace infrastructure was really only drawing men. And it was really a reflection of the culture and it's a very patriarchal society. And when we say peace, security, all of these things, safety, the men come forward. And what we realized is the way the community was structured, that women are really outsized, outsizedly affected by violence, um, bearing the burden of, of taking care of the communities as well as taking care of each other, their families, and facing physical threat. So we thought, we just we need to talk to them. We need to find out what's going on. So we did a little experimental meeting where we said we would have a women's security meeting. And the team leader who was running it, I was in the capital at the time in Juba, um, and the team leader who uh, my, former, my colleague Lisa 
was the team leader at the time, and she called and said, she's like, this is, this is getting very out of control. I, she's like, I can't, I think we're up to 100, maybe more women, and they just keep coming. And so that told us a lot. There was a lot of people out there who wanted uh, to speak. And what the women told us is nobody had ever talked to them before. Nobody had asked them directly um, how, not only what were their concerns, because that's, that's a fairly common question, um, when we you know, all go in and do our needs assessment, but really specifically, what were they already doing to self-protect and what would they like to do to be able to improve that? So there it began. That was the inception and launching point for this inspiration that we took to be able to create, set up this project. And so we now have more than a thousand women across the country who have formed themselves into ruckus making groups of women's peacekeeping teams working in areas that are completely engulfed in the civil war, um, where, which we're now approaching the fourth anniversary of in South Sudan and in communities that are on the periphery of the civil war, but who are affected differently by intercommunal violence or the permeation and the, and the leaking of, of violence that's happened. They're engaging, they're negotiating directly with the military, they're negotiating with military who are occupying schools, That it, they're negotiating with commanders because there's a statistical norm when the battalion rolls into town that you see sexual violence increase. Uh, they're working on domestic violence, intercommunal violence across the board. Uh, one of the most heartfelt moments I had just before I left South Sudan was a visit to one of these field sites where the local chiefs at a village that is on the border between Sudan and South Sudan, really one of these most, most remote places you could possibly imagine, where the local chiefs who are the be-all and end-all in, in, in leadership and justice and, and law and order in a community like that, said that they were now diverting cases from the local chief's court to the women's peacekeeping teams. And they, they actually said that they explained to people that if you come to chief's court, we'll find very quickly one of you guilty, one of you not guilty, and we'll assign a price. You have to pay a compensation price, that's just the way things are done. If you actually want resolution, if you actually want to be able to move forward and deal with this problem, that's what that women's group does, and they move them over there. So now there's all of these, this was a group of mothers, and now there's all these you know, teenage girls who are clamoring to join in, and we're seeing a generational change. Small community out in the middle of a place that almost never, no, no foreigner will ever get to, but we're seeing incremental change in the face of violence. We use our presence for using the uh, fact that we're trusted by all parties. As I said, we're nonpartisan. That means every day we're building relationships. One of our, our, we work in a lot of places where people drink a lot of tea. We work in a places where people drink a lot of heavily sugared tea. Uh, this is true in almost all the countries that we work in. And one of our health advisories to our team is don't stir. You're going to drink a lot of tea. People are going to offer you a lot of tea, and it's going to have about an inch and a half of sugar in a small cup. Don't stir, but you need to drink for, to be polite, and you need to sit there and, and chat and meet with people. Uh, and so that's what we do. And we build relationships with military commanders. We build relationships with militia groups, with the low-level guys who are on the, on the checkpoints, the privates, the equivalents to a private or a foot soldier, as well as the communities, as well as the other humanitarian organizations that we work with. These are very complex environments. Nobody does anything alone. You have to coordinate and work together. And through that... If we're doing our job right, we're holding a nonpartisan space. We're, we've gained acceptance throughout the community. And oftentimes, if groups don't trust each other, somehow because we're embedded and we're living with them, they do trust us. So this situation, this photo, was taken quite recently in the Philippines, where a city called Marawi has recently been under siege by another extremist group claiming affiliation to ISIS. And so this group comes and takes control, and then the city is under siege, civilians are trapped inside, and then you have 
the armed forces of the Philippines working together with what had been for the last several decades their enemy, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, the opposition group there who came together and have been doing very well on their peace process up until this point, coming together, but coming together to work against this, this new group, this extremist element. And as you can see, the streets are filled with arm, armed actors. Civilians are scared, they're trapped, they don't know who to trust. They initially trust one group, then the, their behavior changes and it feels aggressive, and then they feel scared of them, so they loyalty starts to subliminally shift to another group. We go in, we've got teams on the ground, we've got staff from that area, so we've got really good access. We're the only um, non-governmental organization that has access in the city. And you can see my colleague Malik there um, providing presence right around the moment while these exercises are happening. And their job is going through and talking to civilians, making sure they have the information that they need, that they know what's going on, and that they can ha make informed choices about whether they stay or whether they go. Community-based solutions is, is the critical path. Again, we live in a very political, politically motivated, greedy world. And when those big power structures are left to their own devices, if we don't hold them in check, if we don't get active ourselves, then we get to find ourselves in trouble. And in conflict-affected areas, if we're waiting for somebody to come save us, if we're waiting for somebody to come rescue us, people get hurt and we're waiting for a really long time. So we continue, we always root ourselves in that community and we're doing everything we can to support them. You, you were talking about the situation where, with, in Denmark where, where people came, you couldn't round up the, the Danish Jews because they were gone. Our version of that we call early warning, early response. Very technical NGO term. Um, but we have situations where the inevitable ha will happen. We work with people. We want them to be able to prevent violence, to do all of that. But sometimes we, we have to be practical. We live in a difficult world. And so in these situations, we work with communities to learn how to displace themselves as quickly as possible and as safely as possible. Deep, deep rural South Sudan, we had a situation where a community had been hit one year, dry season, wet season fighting. Um, in the dry season, they had had uh, significant casualties, significant destruction, livestock stolen, families separated, kids lost in the bush. It, you move on to rainy season, the fighting settles down because nobody can really move very well. But we knew the next dry season was coming up and this was disputed territory. This fighting was going to come again. So we worked with this community and just really intensively engaged with them to not be fatalistic and say, Let's think about what happened last year. What can we do? Let's think about how you can at least prepare to be as safe as you can should this fighting happen again. They, don't want to, they just don't want to believe it is going to happen, but we really encourage them to engage. We had a staff member from this community, so we had a good in. He was able to really use his mother to influence the, the people to say, you should at least listen to these guys. So we went in, and we spent weeks and weeks and weeks working through them. And in the end, what they were able to do is set up, and again, I can't explain, I can't emphasize enough how rural this place is. It's, it's out where people live in mud huts, just like what you see there. Um, and they, they, you can't access these places by road. It's all walking or flying in if you're in a helicopter, if you're a lucky humanitarian, and you don't have to walk. Fighting's coming. They had set themselves up. They finally, we were watching them. We were, we were talking to them. We were making sure they had the information. We were like, are they going to trigger their, their plan? And we were a little bit worried they weren't. And then suddenly they did. 
And within hours before the army was going to show up on their doorstep, the appointed youth had taken the cattle in one direction. The appointed people who were in charge of the children had rounded them up and taken them in another direction. The big, strong folks who had been assigned to take care of the people with disabilities and the elderly who were not capable of running the blind into the bush were there, had lifted them and carried them out of the way. And they had taken their valuables with them. They'd even put food and clean water out in the place they were going to. And the army arrived to an empty village. So in the year before that had happened, there had been massive destruction and massive killing with preparation, with organization, with resisting being part of that fight, with moving themselves out of the way in a nonviolent way, they all survived. And they were, the army just came in, empty village, and continued to move on, and they were able to return home quite quickly. We take the work that we do. We're one small organization. It's a big, complex, busy world out there. So what we want to do is take, take messages out to crowds, to other people, let people know what's going on, and that we need a paradigm shift. There are 65 million people that have displaced around the world right now, running from their homes because they are not sufficiently safe to stay home. And as an international community, we're not doing a good enough job to be able to, to be able to, to protect people and to address those root causes. So in addition to the work we do in the field, we work, at, we're trying to influence policy and advocacy. We have, we work at the UN. I'm based in Geneva. I have a colleague based in, um, in New York. We're trying to encourage a broadening of practice to bra- open up their toolkits away from the blue helmet peacekeeping as the go-to methodology, as armed actors as the go-to methodology to reduce violence to include civilians in their own solutions. We work with the, the capitals, the donors, and the diplomats community, and we are starting to see a paradigm shift. We're starting to see things happen. A number of reviews have happened over the last couple of years. The Department of Peacekeeping Operations, the peace building architecture, the Women's Peace and Security implementation of, of the Security Council, Resolution 1325, all of their reports are saying we are not, what's, what we're doing has not been working. What we need is to scale up unarmed strategies and they often cite Nonviolent Peace Force as an example of the type of work that we um, are doing. I got a call from a colleague the other day um, who's working for the United Nations Mission in South Sudan. She used to work for us uh, in South Sudan and she said, Tiffany, I just got a copy of a report that's not yet public that it's about best practices of protecting children in war zones. And she said, I was flipping through it and she said, nonviolent peace forces work as cited all over here as an example of a best practice. And I just want to let you know, and I'm just feeling very proud because I used to work for you. And, and this is, you know, I, I'm the executive director of an organization. Of course, I'm proud of NP. And of course, that's the, the thing that I talk about and the vehicle that I talk about. But it's an organization and it's a vehicle. But the real message that I, I carry is that we need a change. And, and it is possible. There's nothing idealistic about applying nonviolence in conflict zones in complex environments. It's hard work. It's heartbreaking work. It's joyous work. It's the most rewarding and the most awful thing you can do in the same day. Uh, we win some, we lose some, we make mistakes. But doing nothing, that alternative, is absolutely unthinkable. What we've been doing for years, for generations, has just made things worse. So if we can come together and really promote the idea that applied practical nonviolence is something that can work, then that's the way we need to do working together. So I thank you very much for your attention and your mindfulness, and I appreciate your time. So I know it's a little bit late. It's... Yeah, we have some uh, time if there are any uh, questions or could also be uh, a brief comment. 
can go to the, uh, hold your hand up and a microphone will come to you. Remember to hold it close to your mouth. Okay. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, I had a couple of questions about um, the nonviolent peace force. Mm-hmm. Um, the main question I have is uh, when it comes to um, citations and, and making a case within the United Nations framework, mm-hmm. what, what are some of the statistics that you guys have, have cultivated or found throughout the process? I'm sure it's very nascent in terms of collecting data yep. sets, but um, still, so that's one question. And then, am I allowed a second question? I don't know. Why don't you just try? Let's start with one. Okay. Someone else. Shall I answer that? Uh, Thank you for your question. It's a great question, actually. I mean, the uh, one of the things that in improving sort of the efficacy of our work is we're trying to prove a negative. We're trying to prove by the fact that we're doing what we're doing that the thing didn't happen. When you're adding that on top of a whole bunch of circumstances around us, that um, we are well beyond our control. But in terms of actually being able to, to influence these types of, of, of reports and decisions and researches, is it comes directly from the work that, that we're doing. So we are able to so, show, for example, that uh, when women are moving out of the protection of civilian sites in South Sudan, unaccompanied into disputed territory areas to collect firewood, which is just a basic need for them, that every day they're reporting sexual assault. Every day. If we do it with an accompaniment team, if one of our teams goes out with them in a very complex situation that requires a lot of support uh, and planning, it's not just going for a walk in the bush, that we can demonstrate and we can show that that rate of sexual assault drops to literally to zero. So we take that information and we go to the UN peacekeepers who have a different style of patrolling and a different way of moving and we try and advocate and we say, if you can adjust where you are or the way you engage, this is the kind of results we're seeing. So it's example by example like that. Other questions? Other questions or comments? If one here, please. I'm just wondering if uh, your organization was involved at all in the uh, women's revolution in Liberia that contributed to mm. Alan Johnson getting elected? We were not, but we're very inspired by it. Uh, I have um, uh, the Pray the Devil Back to Hell, which is a film that, that uh, tells that story. Um, I had brought it into South Sudan when I was the country director there. Crates and crates of it, the Arabic translation. And we were just handing it out to our women's peacekeeping teams and playing with them and sitting with them. And we would all be sobbing and inspired. So, yeah. yeah. Um, Tafia, I have a question. Yeah, please. Um, do you ever bring in any uh, meditative training of any kind for the people in your organization? We have some. So we do, to get our staff ready to be in the field, we do what's called a mission preparedness training. So it's a really in-depth training. I like to call it unarmed civilian protection boot camp. Um, and so it's learning. It's very interactive, lots of role plays, learning everything there is about how to be able to, to engage in this. The type of training is really, we draw a lot out of, of the type of civil resistance training that was done here in the U.S. So a lot of like really trying to trigger people's response. If you work in a conflict zone long enough, you're going to get triggered. Um, and being triggered in a violent way to react with violence or force is really dangerous. And in that process, we also work on a lot of staff care and staff welfare. Um, and this is something that 
that over, particularly in the last couple of years, we've tried to put increased um, attention to. Um, and part of this is dealing with sort of what are various tools and practices that people can use to deal with managing the vicarious trauma, the immediate um, exposure to these horrible things that often people see, um, and to be able to go from there. But I this is one of the things that does keep me up at night is that I just never feels like it's enough. So um, we have our foot, uh, little toe in the water. Um, and we actually have a lot of people who just come to work to us who already have a practice of meditation, which is great. Um, but yeah, if you have any suggestions, we'll take it. So um, my name is Anne. Hi. And um, I am so overwhelmed, but I have to make the comment that you are amazing. It is amazing. You are just a powerhouse of possibility. And I just need to say that out loud. I, Thank you. Most of what you talked about, I, I couldn't take in. I feel like I just took a course. <laughs> it, it was a lot of information. But I thank you so much for the energy that you put out for such a good cause. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you. We do actually have an online course, if anybody is interested. We've just launched it. Uh, it's a five-module, seven-week facilitated course. So if this is the kind of thing you're really interested in learning more about, either and you want to just know about it, if you think it's something you would like to apply in your own communities, or if there's practitioners who want to go a- abroad, it's a great way to, look, uh, to learn more about it. It's facilitated. It's, really, it's very interactive. Um, so if you are pondering it once you leave, just check out our website. There's information there. Um, I don't have to tell anybody in this room that in the United States we've had a big problem with police brutality. Mm. Have you worked with any American police departments? Not yet. Um, This actually, so a couple examples. This particular course... um, uh, one of the we, we deliver it in partnership. We developed it in partnership with UNITAR, which is the United Nations Institute for Training and Research, which means it's delivered on their platform. But here in the U.S., we deliver it in partnership with Merrimack University, which means people can take it for university credit or just audit it. How it relates to your question, however, is for this um, current iteration of the course, is that they really they came to us and said we actually think this course would be really useful for people who are studying to become um, police officers or to enter law enforcement. So they've been talking to their school, their department within their college, and we have participants from there. So that's one way, and we're kind of testing that audience and see if the material re- resonates with them. We've also been approached by um, another a police department in the Midwest who said we would be really interested in talking to you about bringing in some of this training to our own police force. So it would be something we would be very interested in be able to do. We don't. The only programming we've done in the U.S. was at Standing Rock. We had a presence for about five months in Standing Rock. We still we believe very strongly there's work to be done in the U.S. There's also a lot of groups doing really good work. So it would be we we would want to be able to work someplace that we are value added that we're adding to something that's not already there. But I do think the police force is an area that we could because we are we we just do so much work with security forces. So we're really accustomed to being able to speak the language of, of forces like that. So thanks for your question. Thank you for your work. Thank you. Hi, I wondered Hi. if you could briefly comment about what's happening in Myanmar and yeah. uh, what's happening to the Muslims, and are you working more in Myanmar or the refugee camps that are happening right. in Bangladesh? 
Sure. So we have a country program. We have a team on the ground that's been in Myanmar for nearly four years now. Our work there has been really focused on civilian participation in ceasefire monitoring, which is a subject matter for a whole other talk. It's very in-depth. Um, but through that work, we've had been working with groups within Rakhine State, which is the state where the Rohingya are from, um, and really trying to work on uh, social cohesion, bringing people together around a common cause, which is participating in the National Ceasefire Agreement. All of this was fine until August 25th, when the current situation really kicked off. And I find in small letters, it's not a fine situation, but it was, it was a strategic approach of how to engage in a place where where access is really limited. Since August 25th, since the situation has kicked off and we've seen this massive movement of more than half a million people across the board, we have been working to support local Rohingya groups who are monitoring, who are documenting, who are trying to take, just figuring out how to engage on the Myanmar side. But really practically what we realize is that getting access to that area is almost impossible to do the work that we do. So tomorrow we've got a team going actually, literally tomorrow, into Bangladesh um, and they're going to move up to Cox's Bazaar, that area where people have, have moved in. And because we're hearing with the, the usual things that happen in rapid displacement, sexual violence, family separation, exploitation, food riots, um, um, uh, violence in distributions. And so we will have set up a team to operate on that side as well. Thank you. Hi, I have another question. Hi. <laughs> what helps you personally to stay balanced with all this work? <laughs> I don't have a reputation for being very well balanced. <laughs> my, my biggest fear was being on the stage during a meditation section, session. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's, it's more about, it's more about um, motivation and inspiration. Um, and so it's a combination of, you know, as I said, this is the, the hardest work you could possibly imagine to do, but it's also some of the most satisfying work you could po possibly imagine to do. And we work in teams. We work, we become very much like a family. We are forged in fire together. And when you're next to each other um, and you go through these really difficult circumstances, you, you, you've, and you are able to engage with communities who we humble ourselves. I mean, you, it's very easy to come in as the international organization and say, we're here to save you. We are here to teach you. Peace colonialism is a real thing. Um, but to really survive and to really thrive and to, to be, go through your own personal transformation so that you become a better person is you open yourself up to the fact that you're actually going to learn more from the communities that we serve than we could ever possibly quote-unquote teach. We're there to support, to help, to facilitate, to do whatever we can to help keep them alive. But that motivation and inspiration happens every day because of these, these synergies and these relationships that we, we make. We have really practical things in place. We have R&R &R breaks and, you know, we check on our health. We have counseling available, all of those things as well. Um, but really, it comes from, from really deep within. Got a couple of hands. Yeah. Hi. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for coming in and enlightening us on this. Yeah. Uh, topic. Um, I'm curious to, to see. Um, is that better? Curious to see uh, how you guys evaluate where to kind of go to mm -hmm. the next country, or yeah. what are some of the things you kind of take into uh, play before you do that. 
That's great. Yeah. It's something I think about all the time. We have a, a number of approaches. So we have sort of an internal crisis tracking system that we have where we're watching sort of across the globe and we're watching that conflict spectrum, situations that are deteriorating, situations that are heating up, and situations that are sort of tipping over into a next phase. And we're sort of thinking about where, based on what we know, based on desk research, where we think sort of the type of work we could do could be really useful. That's the baseline. Um, and then we are also, the two most common things are, is we're either invited in by civil society, so people from the communities that we're going to be serving, who know of our work, or have heard of this kind of work, who reach out to us and say, would you come in? Um, this is what we're doing. We're unsafe. We need some help. This, hap- this is really how Myanmar got started. Based on the work we do in the Philippines, Myanmar civil society asked us to come in and do that work. Um, and then other places is like how our entry into Iraq went, where it's other humanitarian service providers in the United Nations, um, colleagues who said, who know our work from other places. So it's a, it's a number of different, different um, approaches. Yeah? I think we got it. It's like getting the... <laughs> your mic goes off. <laughs> yes. And then there's two more over here. We'll go here. And... We're getting close to our closing time. Great. Okay. We have two hands. I think up front, yeah. What, um, what are good ways of getting involved from here? Great. Yeah. That's great. Well, directly behind you is my colleague, Jilda, <laughs> who is our only staff member west of the Mississippi. So she's based in the Bay Area um, and a great contact point. Uh, so, I mean, there's a number of different ways. Uh, uh, Jilda, why don't you stand up? Yes, stand up and give a wave. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a number of ways you can get involved. It, it, we, like in different locations, we like to have people have, start chapters of Nonviolent Peace Force. And you can take it and do with it what you will. The idea is to really sort of promote the idea of nonviolence. We have chapters around the country who really focus on going into schools, teaching this kind of thing to small kids so that it just becomes something that they've only ever known. <coughs> they've never known not, doesn't exist at the community level. So there's that. Holding um, events like this, inviting us into other groups that you might be part of, um, in house parties, those types of things so we can spread the word. Helps us to raise funds as well as to raise the profile and get people involved. Um, if there are things that you think that this would be useful, if you want a training in your community, reach out, talk to Jilda. We can help organize things like that. Um, so... Or I'm always looking for talent and always recruiting. So <laughs> it's always another way to get involved. Yeah, I'll just add that uh, I've been teaching here through Spirit Rock a series of co-teaching with uh, Kazu Haga, a series of, of trainings connecting Buddhist practice with nonviolence training. And um, I think the next one we're going to do is not going to be a Spirit Rock event, but it'll be in Berkeley probably in July. And if you want to be in touch with that, you could put your name on the uh, mailing list that I have out on the table. And I only send it out about three or four times a year. So not, not too much email. Okay. And you'll, but you'll get informed about that. Do we have time for the, the gentleman in the hat has had his hand up for quite yeah. a long time. Oh, there we go. Or use the powerful lungs. Uh, let's have this be the last one. Tiffany. This is the last question? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm particularly disturbed by the sexual violence that we often hear in the midst of these conflicts. So it seems like a particularly unnatural aggression. Have you developed any methodologies for countering the aggressor, mm-hmm. not just protecting the women and mm-hmm. children? I got that. That makes perfectly good sense. But how do you 
interact with the aggressors, it just doesn't seem like a natural thing to do. So returning to your natural state would not involve sexual violence. I don't know if that makes sense, but mm-hmm. um, have you... It's a big last question. Uh, yeah. Methodologies around that. I mean, yes. So there, there is a lot of uh, work that is done around working with men. I mean, first of all, caveat being, of course, it's not all male aggressors and not all female um, survivors, but that is the statistical norm. So accept that as the caveat as I'm talking about this, recognizing that that there are male victims as well, and in some cases, female perpetrators. Um, but on the norm, so it's engaging, ga- engaging men separately and together um, with women. I think that what we see is, is a number of things. Sometimes it's the commodification of women. So in communicate communities where where there's in some places a dowry system where women are sort of treated as property of the of the males when the um, fighting is happening, it's just like stealing somebody's cattle. It's the humiliation of the other of the other side. Uh, in some places, it's um, uh, armed groups who are sent out for plunder. I mean, it is very old school barbaric pirate approach where they don't get paid. There is no salary. You go get control of that town for us and you can take whatever you want. And that inevitably will include women and girls. Uh, so it's working, working with people, working around one of the areas we're kind of um, exploring right now is, is approaching trauma and tr- the role of untreated trauma in the cycles of violence. And this is, as it relates to sexual violence, this is an area you really see it because not only do you see it as, as rape as a weapon of war and that piece of it that is the headline piece. But you see, of course, increased domestic violence, increased sexual violence in the homes, in the schools, in the communities, in that post, during conflict, certainly, but even in that post-conflict period when people who have been fighters, who are usually men, are so brutalized and traumatized, they don't know what to do with that. And that's how that is what becomes their aggression. And our work with women, with the ruckus raising women's peacekeeping teams, is really about not providing protection to them. We do that as they need to in certain instances, but the entire focus of that work is helping them be leaders in peace and security. And that is for me in my work that I've seen is the best link to increasing that equalization and rebalancing is when women are, are supported to take leadership roles in peace and security, that they're not treated like children that just need third party protection and that they can engage with men equally as well as whenever we start a women's peacekeeping team, it's open to male participation. They can also participate and they can work together and they set the tone. So it's a, it's a very complex project and it's, 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 it's unbelievably uh, barbaric and hard to imagine the levels of horror. Um, So it's an area that is slow and steady that we continue to engage on. And there's a lot of organizations doing really good work on it as well. Thank you, Tiffany, so much. Thank you, everybody. Let's end just with uh, a moment of um, going within and seeing what may have been of uh, most significance for you from the evening. What you want to, uh, particularly what you might want to take forward in any way. And I'll close in the um, 
very traditional way um, called the Dedication of Merit. Many of you are familiar with it. May the time together are exploring of nonviolence, its connection with Buddhist practice, the nonviolent peace force, the work being done. May our evening together be of benefit ultimately to all beings, which includes us. Thank you, everyone. And I'm wondering, uh, Tiffany and uh, Jill, did you have, will you be maybe up by the uh, literature just for a little while if people have questions? You bet. We have a table out front. We'll be around. My other colleague, Amy, stand up and wave your hand, is here. So there's three of us. Uh, we can answer your questions. There's a sign-up sheet if you want more information and there's some literature. Please help yourself. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.